just how revolutionary a figure was Rolling Stone founder Jan Wenner, Joe Hagen is here to talk about his acclaimed biography, Sticky Fingers. To what extent did food drive and reflect the expansion of the British Empire? Simon Winchester will be here to talk about two new books about tea, food, and the British Empire. Plus, we'll talk about what we here at the Book Review are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Joe Hagen is here now to talk about his new book, Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine, and also joining us, my colleague, John Williams. Joe, thanks for being here. Thank you. All right. So how did you get involved in this project? Well, a few years ago, uh, I left the city and moved upstate into the Hudson Valley region of New York. And uh, one day, I was working in a local cafe on my laptop, and in walks Jan Wenner, uh, who I recognized immediately and was perplexed as to what he was doing there. So I just went up and and said hello to him and said, hey, Jan Wenner, what are you doing in Little Tivoli, New York? Right. And, uh, and were you like a lifelong Rolling Stone reader, Jan Wenner fan? Well, Rolling Stone, yes. I, first of all, I was a huge rock and roll fan, just a huge music fan. And I had interned at Rolling Stone. In fact, I moved to New York in 1995 to intern at Rolling Stone. And later, as a media reporter, I had had you know an audience with Jan to chat with him, and he, you know, dropped his names as he does about Mick Jagger and all this. But so I had didn't really know him, but here I was talking to him. After I got to know him socially for about a year, the subject of doing his biography came up during a lunch that we had, and uh, that's how the whole adventure began. No, but you were not the first person to contemplate doing a biography. No, there'd been one attempt that lasted five years. That had a contract. Lewis McAdams was the guy's name. He was somebody that Jan knew from San Francisco in the 60s who had published poetry in Rolling Stone. So that happened. Then Rich Cohen— But what happened with that book? Did did Jan— Well— Was it, it authorized? Did Jan back out from cooperating? Jan had control of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy had the contract, but Jan was heavily involved in, like, partitioning out the research and controlling it. And— it imploded for a lot of different reasons. One, the guy became, I think, overwhelmed by the job and his own personal life kind of collapsed. And then yet the controlling nature that Jan had put on it, I don't think was helping the situation. Mm-hmm. And it just basically fell apart. And then the second one didn't get even hardly at the door, really. I mean, Rich Cohen got a contract to do the book, and then Jan canceled it when he read the book proposal. So you knew that you were going into perhaps a situation that might be difficult Absolutely. In fact, I tried to do a lot of due diligence before mm-hmm. I got involved in it because of those past things, including trying to talk to Rich, who, who sort of gave me the chapter and verse on how his attempt went. And I realized this has to be independent, period. And I have to get it in writing. At first, Jan tried to exert too much control right off the bat after he asked me to do it. And I told him no. So in what way? Was it like in terms of contractual things like I need to see the pages before? Would, or was yeah, it controlling sure. he, who you spoke to? Or He wanted to control the subject matter of his sexual history. And, and I, that specifically. Yeah. And that was the specific thing. And I balked at that. But we got to a point where we began to negotiate where, where it was really lawyers and a piece of paper. Like we have to get into a contract of like what this would mean, how it would be shaped, right. the, the, the relationship. So knowing that Jan Wenner was a kind of difficult figure of these previous sort of attempts and, and the legal situation, what was the attraction to you to tell this particular story? Well, I'm a huge fan. I subscribed to Rolling Stone growing mm-hmm. up in high school. And I knew 
that because the story was sitting there right. and that nobody had been able to get to it, that it must be a lot there. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. just intuitively as a reporter, you're thinking there must be a rich thing. And when I learned that his archive had 500 boxes, that it was this incredibly well-maintained, organized thing, and I thought, well, this there must be a lot of amazing stuff in there. Imagine the history. And then I got a look at some of it when I said, let me dig up all the John Lennon stuff and mm-hmm. through it, and it was extraordinary. Did you have full access to that archive? I did, carte blanche, really, and it was searchable where you could search for certain subjects and it would show you the boxes that had material relating to that person or subject. And so I was really able to focus my research around, even though it was huge, mm-hmm. number of, of boxes, I was able to focus the research, and it was extraordinary stuff. So we know that since the book's been published, Weiner has you know, voiced some of these things have come to pass where he hasn't been happy with some of the, uh, the tone, especially around his sexual history. But I wonder if during the process of writing the book, did any of that tension come out then, or is it all sort of a post-publication? It was throughout for me. That yeah, must not, have been difficult. It was. It was like almost having to manage his expectations, and then also kind of constantly be aware of these this elephant in the room, which is that he wants to maintain a certain level of control, and I know I have to get the story while also managing my relationship with him. So there was a lot there. And it was nerve-wracking, frankly. But what helped me get through it was I made a decision really at the outset that I was going to be honest with him mm-hmm. and always be frank with him. And if I came across difficult material, I was just going to, you know, address it with him. So in that way, it kind of let some of the pressure off. And by the end, you know, we reached a point where I really tried to present him with the most radioactive material and make him aware of what I knew so he wouldn't be surprised. So you look at a book like this and from the outside you could say it's a, it's a book about music. It's a book about the media. It's a book about power. It's a book about that period, which is 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, now about sex and obviously drugs. Like, how did you see the story? Well, it evolved. I mean, at first I thought, oh, it'll be a bunch of rock and roll stories. Mm -hmm. But then I began to realize that it was much, much richer than that. And at first I was a little nervous about it. I was like, like, there's all these ancillary characters that people have never heard of, but who turned out to be really important. And I started to say, well, you know what? I just, it has to be about that. I have to follow the story where it's going. And what it turned out to be was this kind of rich cultural history that was the soap opera of these certain, of Jan and this circle of people that he knew, many of whom were famous, some of whom were not. And that if I connected it all and told it well, that it would be you know, bigger than just a bunch of rock and roll stories. One of the things that's been called out for praise, I think, in almost every review, and the book came out now a month ago? Uh, yeah, month late ago? October. Yeah. Late October. So we've got lots of reviews in. It's getting a great amount of attention. Of course, Jack Schaefer reviews it this week in the book review. But everyone seems to mention the fact that this could have been a very name-droppy book. And you said earlier that Jan himself is a very name-droppy person, but that it wasn't and that you were very restrained, to the, you know, when art... Garfunkel comes in, it's because, you know, he needs to be there or whoever it might be. Was that a deliberate decision? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I wasn't overawed by these people. But I also realized that if you stripped away just the sort of uh, de facto reverence that, you know, we're supposed to have for rock stars, this was just a story of a bunch of young people acting up and trying to make their way in the world. Right. And that the closer I made it down to the human scale, 
the more successful the book would be. This occurred to me in the process of writing it, really. My big picture question about Wenner, especially in the, let's say, first 50 or 60 pages of the book, I get the sense of him as an almost Nixonian character where he's in this boarding school and he's writing the kind of gossip columns to get back at the kids who are more popular than him. And he, he never seems to me at all cool. And yeah. yet the magazine very effortlessly kind of defined and created all of these things that were very cool. Sure. And how do you how do you explain that juxtaposition? Well, I mean, have you ever met a high school newspaper editor? They're not like <laughs> the um, super dorks. They're not like the coolest people in the school. They but they have a feeling of that they could be. And the proximity to what is going on gives them a lot of energy and gives them satisfaction. Jan's story is of a guy who's sort of like constantly kind of uh, pressed against the glass because he wants to be close hmm. to what is cool, what's going on, who's sexy, who's hip, who's beautiful. He wants to be around those people. And I guess the sub-question there then, though, is that do you think he has Do you think he has or had good taste or yeah, do you think do. he was well, just good at letting he, people do their thing? Well, he recognized people who had good taste and he brought them into his orbit. And number one was his wife, Jane Winner, who was really the tastemaker in their life and who also had good judgment about who had good taste and who was good. And Jan had just raw ambition. He could pick out great writers, not necessarily because he had such uh, literary pretensions for what was good writing, but he recognized people who had ambition, people who had like just incredible intent and wanted to be in his pages. That, was that it, attractive to him, ambition in, in himself and in other people? Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of, well, not kind of, it is one of the things that the title is about. The title, in addition to being a reference to a Rolling Stones album and, you know, sex and greed and all these other things that it has to do with, is about ambition. Jan had incredible ambition. The people he had around him were ambitious. I mean, look at the people that became part of his sort of central orbit, almost comedically so in recent years. Bono, Bruce Springsteen, Mick Jagger. These, they're not just artists, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're institutions. They're businessmen. They understand what they're creating and building. And Jan liked that, and they recognized in Jan a partner in, uh, in who could help them. What do you think, after having written this, led to the great success of Rolling Stone? I mean, was it was it attributable to Jan himself? Was it the moment? Was it the people around him? Well, initially, it was definitely that Jan had more ambition and energy than anybody around him in San Francisco, California in 1967. I mean, what he did was not very hippie-like. You know, at the height of the mm -hmm. Summer of Love and the Haight-Ashbury, you know, here's a guy who's wearing, as you can see on the cover, a you know, blue Oxford button-down that was probably from Brooks Brothers, who was able to kind of keep his eye on the ball and work intensely hard and assemble it and bring people together and make it happen. Well, that's like, you know, 90% of it, right? And his timing was could not have been better, and he was the guy to do it. You know, he had one foot in of that world and one foot out in a kind of classic way, you know, which made him also a journalist, really. Too. How did he have one foot in, one foot well, out? Well, he wasn't Where a was hippie. He, he was from? not really – he was a preppy. He was a social climber. He was not somebody who was in San Francisco looking for spiritual enlightenment. You know what I mean? He was already from there and he had followed a path to it by following all the kind of like uh, wealthy – children of privilege who were also migrating into this world. And he followed them there. And he recognized, oh, this is the new thing. And the rock and roll, I love it. It's great. And it is an expression. And Jan got this. This mm -hmm. was his vision. It wasn't just a bunch of rock bands. It was the expression of this generation's sense of their own power, that this was the new paradigm, you know, and that this could be a vehicle 
to the future, you know, that rock and roll was not, as he writes in the first issue, it's not just about the music, it's about the things and the attitudes that the music embraces. And he recognized that that was basically the generation saying to themselves, we're going to take over. Mm-hmm. We, there's a, there's more of us than there's ever been. We're the smartest, most educated. There's, as Tom Wolfe said, first time that kids had money, right? <laughs> Is that what you think made Rolling Stone as a magazine work, that it transcended the music, that it was also Absolutely. a culture, yeah. that was where Bonfire of the Vanities was serialized, the right stuff? Well, listen, these two things went together. One, you had the rock stars who had pretensions to want to be known as artists. Mm-hmm. They wanted to see themselves as having credibility. They wanted to be revered. They wanted to be respected. And the way to do that, and Jan saw this, and this was his brilliant move, was to attach to that politics and social observation and all the things you would associate with mainstream magazines, but making rock have that cultural credibility. And so that was a a formula that said, basically, the rock and roll generation has as much right to be at the center of the conversation as anybody else. And now we're at a time, obviously, where for many years people have said that, you know, rock is dead, even though I'm sure you and I still listen to it. But uh, do you have a sense for yourself of when the magazine's kind of golden age ended or when its influence started to wane in some important ways? Well, this has been argued since, you know, time immemorial. I mean, even some people thought it ended in the 70s and early in the 70s. For us, like children (laughs) of the 80s, that couldn't possibly be true. Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I actually came up with MTV and Rolling Stone. I had a subscription to, but I really read it to read about people I saw on MTV, you Mm -hmm. know. So I came from a slightly different angle. But I remember like in the 90s when I sort of myself reverted to spin and you'd read that, and then there would be bands like Pavement, who were like the big, big band of the 90s, mm-hmm. who were singing, you know, goodbye to the mm-hmm. rock and roll era. It was kind of over. We all ironically thought of rock as something that it had outlived its pretensions, you know, if that makes sense. And so, you know— uh, <laughs> Was it like grunge and then also hip-hop? Yeah, and, and just everything kind of sort of the, the, the sense of rock leading us into something good sort of ended, you know. And after that, it became, you know, along with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, a kind of institutional idea of uh, recycling for financial gain, mm-hmm. frankly, right. you know, box sets and repackaging and on and on and on. How cynical do you think that is? Do you think the winner has maintained, after all these years, his own sort of belief in the power of that culture-making vehicle or no? Well, listen, as the book kind of tries to illuminate. He's a kind of walking contradiction. If you saw Jan Winter at a Bruce Springsteen concert, he would be jumping up and down. He has that kind of like guilelessness to him on the one hand. On the other hand, he's an opportunist. And they can go together, those two things, and they did with him. You mentioned, John, the death of rock and roll. Obviously, it's also an era in which we're contemplating, if not the death, certainly the waning of magazines. And it's interesting that this book is coming out at the same time that a number of big books about magazines are coming out and things going on in the magazine industry. You had Tina Brown's Vanity Fair Diaries. New York Magazine just had a huge coffee table 50-year anniversary at the same time that many magazines, Rolling Stone is up for sale. A number of big editors have recently left Condé Nast magazines and magazines at Hearst. So did you think about that timing in terms of when, when the book was coming out? Obviously, you couldn't have known that it was going to come out at this point. No, book, but you know, just by moment. having written it, yeah. I kind of intuited mm-hmm. where we were. Because here I had followed decade by decade this man who was really at the center of a lot of zeitgeist over the years. And you could – and I knew it 
also just from being in the business that the magazine world was declining. The music business had already basically kind of reformatted itself as something lesser. Right. And, you know, culturally anyway, in terms of its centrality to the culture. And I, it's interesting you say that because it's, it's magazines, yes, it's music, but it's also the whole culture of the baby boomers has arrived to this reckoning that we're in right now. Yes, other reckonings going on <laughs> yeah, generationally. Yeah, this book kind of, it does talk about that at the end. It's, it talks about how the kind of, the, the, the narrative of the 60s had basically played itself out and kind of lost the thread, you know? And now here we are with the new generation that's basically calling this other generation out to the, onto the mat, you know, gender-wise and every other way, and saying, here are the ways you failed. I didn't intend that to happen, but the Beyond Winter story just seemed to kind of logically fit into that. Well, that's a very melancholy way to end what is <laughs> should be a bright segment about a book that's getting a lot of praise. Um, the book, again, is Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone Magazine by Joe Hagen. Joe, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Joining us now is Simon Winchester, author of many books, recently Atlantic, Pacific, forthcoming The Perfectionists, A Brief History of Precision, a very intriguing title, but here not to talk about his own books, but to talk about two books he reviews in the book review this week, The Taste of Empire, How Britain's Quest for Food Shaped the Modern World by Lizzie Collingham, and A Thirst for Empire, How Tea Shaped the Modern World by Erica Rappaport. Simon, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. This is one of those sort of lucky things that happens in publishing where two books come out. The, the titles are almost identical, and they're looking at kind of overlapping food and drink and, and England type of things. But tell us a little bit about each book and, and sort of how they differ, and we could start with perhaps the Collingham. Yes, I mean, that's the more comprehensive insofar as the thirst for empire is all about tea, whereas the... Um, the Collingham book, which, I mean, I think they're both wonderful, but Lizzie Collingham has just done a wonderful job showing how Britain, I mean, we forgive her for having an empire. It's all done with, and we, we apologize to everybody <laughs> in setting up this empire. And essentially, she takes the story from Newfoundland in the beginning of the 16th century up to modern times, left behind a trail of food importing and later on food exporting and manufacturing, which essentially not only provided the sort of transportation infrastructure for the for the British Empire, but also altered people's tastes everywhere. I mean, we in Britain, for instance, in the 15th century, we didn't know a great deal about fish, despite being completely surrounded by water. <laughs> Slightly uh, so, insane. Uh, yeah. But then we went to Newfoundland and found, and I forget who the poet was, that said there were so many cod there, you could almost walk from... Newfoundland to Nova Scotia on the backs of these cod. There were just millions of these great silvery fish, which we, the British, then started to import in huge quantities, which had all sorts of effects, uh, not the least of them being making us astonishingly fit and able to participate in the Industrial Revolution, to gather up, you know, get on ships and seize more parts of the world as part of their empire. So this is the genius of Lizzie Collingham. She did a wonderful book once on... on diet in the British Army mm -hmm. and how the provision of good food makes soldiers fight really well. People grumbling about their food in Vietnam was one of the many, many factors which led to a not particularly successful war. 
There's this marvelous book called, by a man called Hobhouse, I think, called Seeds of Change, about the six vegetables or six seeds that change the world. And this is a book very much in, 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 along these lines, that food is tremendously important because it so underpins the morale and the fitness of the society. I like the fact that in her author bio, she specifies that she writes in her garden shed. I can believe that too. Yes, right. Um, all right, let's talk for just a moment, and then we'll go into more detail on both books, but about Erica Rappaport's book about tea. Tea came from China and was then, by a series of unusual circumstances in, involving a Danish scientist, transported over the border into India. And we, the British, ran India. And that's where we started growing our tea in Assam and um, northeast India. And then exporting it and to, to ourselves and then around the world. I mean, I can get it here in the United States. Mm-hmm. It became, um, after about the middle of the 17th century, the cup that cheers. It was the the drink that we all favored. We initially liked coffee, but then came tea, and we then took to that, you know, like fish to water or whatever. And she tells Erica Rappaport an extraordinarily detailed picture of how the people that grew this tea and prepared it, which mm-hmm. is actually quite complicated to make, how it was sold to the British. Every time it sort of wavered and we sort of think you know, coffee or cocoa, rather nice, the Empire Tea Marketing Board stepped in and said, no, 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 you've got to drink tea. It's the patriotic drink. And uh, so it remains, except I think now slowly tea is um, losing its favor and coffee, rather like in America, is establishing primacy, which to a traditionalist like me is is preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the terrible Americanization slash globalization that's now, I guess, replacing that that force of I'm empire. I'm afraid so, yes. But so it's interesting because you mentioned cod earlier. And of course, there was an earlier book about how cod shaped the world and subsequent books about salt and about, mm-hmm. you know, how one sort of food or another and even beyond food shapes the world. How well does she make the case for tea? I think very well indeed. Uh, it's... Uh, all sorts of interesting things to say. I mean, one, the thing that, that sticks in my mind is is the link between the British thirst for tea mm-hmm. and the dropping of the atom bombs in 1945. Okay, connect those dots for us. I'll connect the dots for you. We, the British, well, first of all, tea was essentially, it was initially imported into Europe by the Portuguese. Portuguese didn't like it much as it happened, and then they sent their sort of old, stale black tea to England, and we, for perverse reasons, thought, well, this is rather nice, and we started drinking it. And so the East India Company, which was at the time importing it from China, this is before tea started to be grown in India, was sent off with a mission to get as much tea as you can. And the big trading port in South China was Canton, or Guangzhou as it is now. So the big ships from the East Indian Company um, motored over from Calcutta and Bombay to a lesser extent over to Canton, bought lots of tea. But the Chinese said, we don't want any of your paper money. Mm-hmm. We want metal. Because we don't trust. I mean, why should we have a, you know, a five-pound note with a picture of some king of whom we've never heard paying for our valuable merchandise. So we gave them metal, and we gave them bars initially of of copper and bronze, and then silver and gold. And so enormous was the appetite for tea in Britain that the East India Company ran out of copper, bronze, gold, and silver. And we didn't know what to trade for the tea, but except someone came up with a brilliant idea that on the banks of the upper Ganges River in Bihar and provinces like this, there was opium. Very we grew clever. opium. Very cleverly, sinister. So bricks of opium, about the size of a, actually not a brick, more like a cannonball, packed up in ornate, beautiful oak wood boxes, 
were put on the ships from Calcutta, sent to Canton, and the Cantonese thought, well, this is wonderful. I mean, they were already fairly attuned to opium, but now we, the British, really got them hooked. The emperor up in Beijing, Peking as it was then, said this is outrageous. We're not having foreign mud, as they called it, so we're going to stop this trade. And the local, the hoppo, he was called the customs officer down in Canton, was told to stop the trade and preferably sink the British ships that were bringing it. And so they did. And the 24,000, I think it was, cases of opium were thrown into the water of the Pearl River Delta, and our ship was destroyed. Well, Queen Victoria and her very sort of braggartly Foreign Secretary, Lord Palmerston, said this is monstrous. This is a free trade interference mm-hmm. with, we're going to, you know, these Chinese, they got to be stopped. So we sent warships over and we laid siege to Canton. They, the Chinese, having been essentially cut off for centuries, had no guns. We had very good guns. So we won. We won what was called the First Opium War in 1841. And part of the uh, what the Chinese gave up was Hong Kong. So in exchange for this, we got Hong Kong. We went to war again in 1860. And this time we got a whole lot more territory. So now China, a, a tottering country, was being clawed to bits by the British. And this encouraged others. It encouraged the Russians in the north. It encouraged the French in Hainan Island, the mm-hmm. Germans in Shandong. And so everyone's taking uh, parts of China. It's being nibbled at and gnawed at. And the Japanese over to the east, who have hitherto never expressed interest in China, have recently won a war, a very brief war against the Russians. Mm-hmm. And they think, well, we can defeat a great imperial power like Russia. Let's have a bit of China. So they started taking China and went to war with China in 1933 and began in earnest in 1937. And then they said, let's set up the Great East Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere. Let's have Malaysia. Let's have Hong Kong. Let's have Indonesia. And then they bombed Pearl Harbor. And the Americans said, enough of that. And then you know what happened. All right. So we can blame tea for everything. I'm afraid you can. Wow. I'm curious about how did tea become popular in England? Like, was there was there major support? Was it a huge business effort? Was there a queen or a king or some figure who popularized it? Well, I dare say Prince Albert, who popularized so many things, the wearing of tartan, the putting up Christmas trees and Christmas decorations, building sewers. I'm sure he had a, a hand in it. But no, I think in 17th and 18th century England, people just took to it. It became this supremely successful drink. But as I said it a few moments before, it's it's losing its grip on Britain mm-hmm. now. And, and the empire, because there's no empire, there is no sort of concerted effort to, for the good of the empire, you know, you're patriotic if you drink tea. That's all disappeared. So I fear we will become just an outpost of the United States and drink coffee. You mentioned Christmas earlier, and I want to go back to that because it's a great part of the other book as well, The Taste of Empire. Explain how Christmas teaches geography to British school children. Well, we always in my family and most other English families that I know, at least in my generation, did what's called Stir Up Sunday, which is one of the last Sundays in November. And we've, in my house in Massachusetts, we've done it, which is to make, and this normally applies to the Christmas puddings, which is a steamed pudding, a steamed fruit pudding. You put all the ingredients, which is flour and suet, suet's important, and currants and raisins and sultanas, all of these things. And you stir them, the family is gathered together, as you're just about before you put it in the oven, and give it a stir always from east to west, because that's the direction that the wise men came bringing gifts to the baby Jesus in Bethlehem. Explain for people who don't know what suet is. Suet is the lining, or rather the covering of the kidneys 
Uh, Normally, when you go to a butcher in America and say, can I have suet? They say, I have no idea what you're talking about. And no, you probably can't. But in the one supermarket in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, they know exactly what you want. And they know because you've told them. Well, there is a bit of that. (laughs) And they always say, do you want it ground? And I do. And they always give it to me for nothing. They want to get rid of it. (laughs) But you go into a proper supermarket and they have no idea what you're talking about. But it is, it's fat. It's it's a Mm -hmm. very low temperature boiling fat. And so you have all these things, and, and you, you get to learn in England anyway that the, the flour comes from Canada, from the wheat in Canada, that the suet probably comes from Ireland, and that the eggs certainly come from Ireland, and the currants come from, or let's say, Barbados, and the brown sugar, the demerara sugar certainly comes from the Caribbean. And one's mother and father, and later in school, one's teacher would say that the ingredients of any meal, not just something as exotic as a Christmas pudding, will tell you a lot about geography. And it is, you know, our lamb in England always came from New Zealand. Where is New Zealand? It's that little couple of islands off the east coast of Australia. So it's rather like stamp collecting in a way. You get to know geography very well. One of the most delightful things about Collingham's book, it seems to me, is the way that she chose to organize it, which is very original. I think it's, it's superb. I mean, Mark Kolansky with Cod did it to an extent, which is to describe meals and present recipes, because that's what Miss Collingham does. But yes, we have these lavish and wonderful descriptions of meals that each tell a story related to her overall theme, which is the imperial appetite produced trade networks and changed the world at large. Is there a meal in here that's sort of particularly stuck with you um, and and the way that she told the story of that meal and integrated it into the history? Yes, I liked the working class meals in Manchester. When you get beef and you get um, stews and things and, and, and muffins afterwards, I mean, a, a good, I mean, this is comfort food writ mm-hmm. large. Given to the lunchtime, to the the man in in the slums of Manchester, not slummy enough that he can't afford food. I mean, his his family give him food so that he can go out to work in the factory and be industrious and uh, productive for the rest of the day. And that meal I wanted to eat because I thought, my God, this is the kind of dinner because the, the working class in England traditionally call lunch dinner. So, you know, and dinner is called supper. Supper and tea is okay. Breakfast is breakfast. Breakfast. Then you have elevenses. I always used to, which was a piece of cake or something and a cup of tea. And then there was lunch, which we would call lunch at home. And then there's afternoon tea, and then there's dinner, and then just before bed there's there's supper. So why we aren't a nation of grotesquely obese people, I don't know. I think the the quantity was less. You come to both of these books having written many books, of course, but fairly recently, both the Atlantic and Pacific books, which were kind of biographies, stories of those seas. And I imagine that there was a lot of overlap. Absolutely. And my thinking out loud, my first trip across the Atlantic that I wrote a book about was from Liverpool to Montreal on a ship, the Empress of of Britain. And in a way, the, the foods that were being exported to Canada, manufactured foods from Britain, things like Marmite and Bovril. They're part of the story as well, and the kind of food you get on the ship, which was pretty ghastly, I must say. But yeah, all of these journeys that I took are essentially replicated in much greater detail in both of these books because food was so hugely important. 
given your fondness for so many of these rituals and foods of your homeland. What do you miss most in America about the British approach to food and, and what you eat there? Well, I think I don't want to come out as a drunkard. I, I, <laughs> I'm, I miss English beer. I mean, I don't much like cold, flavorless beer that you have in America. I know there are these attempts on craft breweries and so forth. They're, they're doing a good job. And bread. I think American bread is just horrible stuff, whereas British bread, when I get back home. So decent bread, decent marmalade, and decent beer. That's what I miss. All right. And then in the, from these two books, which, again, I'll give the titles, A Thirst for Empire, How Tea Shaped the Modern World by Erica Rappaport and The Taste of Empire, How Britain's Quest for Food Shaped the Modern World by Lizzie Collingham. Both of them, and in your review, they're filled with these great factoids and just fun tidbits from history. Can you share one of your favorites from either book? I think one of the stories that I like most of all is about Fiji and that in the museum in the capital of Fiji is the fork that was used to eat the Reverend Baker. Wow. Well, that's not a delightful fact, but it is a fascinating one. I guess we'll have to read. I'm assuming that's from The Taste of Empire. It is indeed. That was part of The Taste of Empire. All right. Reverend Baker, cooked lightly. Simon Winchester, such a pleasure to have you here. We can look forward to your next book, The Perfectionist, A Brief History of Precision, coming next May. And in the meantime, thanks so much for reviewing both of these books. Thank you very much indeed. Joining us now are my colleagues, Greg Coles, John Williams, and Lovia Garake to talk about what we're reading. Hi, guys. Hi. All right. Let's start with you, Greg. What are you reading this week? I am reading a novel called The Fifth Child by Doris Lessing. Lessing, of course, uh, won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 2007, and she um, died in 2013. I'd been meaning to read her for a while, um, but what actually sent me back to this book in particular, which was published in 1988, was... Ruth Franklin's review of the new Louise Erdrich novel, Future Home of the Living God, uh, which is about a pregnant woman and mentions in passing that it has shades of Rosemary's Baby. And The Fifth Child, which is a very slender book by Doris Lessing, also has shades of Rosemary's Baby in it. Unlike the uh, more kind of realistic fiction that Lessing started out uh, her career with the famously the Golden Notebook um, and and other books. This has a real kind of gothic horror, almost Frankenstein feel to it. It's about a couple, Harriet and David, um, in England, starting in the '60s, very prosperous, and they they want a very large family. And it takes you through their courtship and early marriage and the birth of their first four children, and it's all very idyllic. And then she becomes pregnant. Harriet does with the fifth child. And from the very start, it all goes to hell. Um, And and this kind of sinister feeling builds um, as she's carrying the child. And then uh, it changes from Rosemary's Baby more to like the bad seed once the boy Ben is born. He's born looking like a troll almost. He's, he's He's muscled as a baby. He's got this kind of dense body. And uh, he's he's almost freakishly large, and he's just purely evil. They can't control him. Uh, he seems to you know accidents happen around him. Uh, the older children are maybe at risk, and it's it's really about the maternal relationship between Harriet and Ben. Um, she 
almost gives up on him. At one point, he's institutionalized. Then she reclaims him. It starts to feel like a fable or a fairy tale, partly in kind of the decline of England, because you you get it through these decades um, from the idyllic, then through all the kind of social upheaval, but all told through the perspective of this family. Um, but it's it's also just this kind of relentless, grim. Uh, th- there's no consolation in this book at all, um, in the danger to the family, and the, and and it um, leaves open. It, it's very much a book about maternity and. Um, kind of fraught relations uh, between parents and children, um, especially if the children are not what you would have hoped for or expected. I feel I feel like I have to go next. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry if I'm sorry if I'm putting us out of order. But John, what are you reading? Now? I'm, I'm, re- <laughs> I'm reading relentless and grim things too. And the first of them uh, also involves parents, children. It's also fable-like. It also has, in some way, a decline of England aspect to it. Um, <laughs> The children are not evil, but uh, it's a debut novel that I reviewed uh, this week called Elmet by Fiona Mosley, who's a 29-year-old British writer who sets this story in the Yorkshire countryside in Britain, which is what used to be the Celtic, the ancient Celtic kingdom of, of Elmet, which is where it gets its title from. And it's about a very tough father who makes his living as a bare-knuckle boxer on the countryside and his two children. They live on land that he does that the father doesn't own, but he just sort of claimed to build this house on with his own hands. And the trouble he gets into with the landowner who doesn't want him to be on it and the ways in which his children get entrapped in this situation. There's also a lot about labor and collectivism. The people in the town, you know, also fight the landowner for, for lower rents and better wages. And it, it has a very distinctly fairy tale like quality, even though it is very dark and grim uh, and also very violent at times. Um, but it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize this year, and it's, it's very impressive. And maybe because I was in that mood and I was reading it upstate last week when I was away for the holiday in kind of a wooded, you know, quiet, weird area, <laughs> um, I, I picked up Cormac McCarthy's first novel. I've been meaning to go back and reread some of his books. I haven't read this one before called The Orchard Keeper, published in 1965 when he was in his early 30s. And it's a very disorienting book in terms of where you are and who the characters are at any given point. But he really, it just emphasizes how fully formed he arrived. I mean, it's it's just that perfect gothic tone. I mean, perfect if, if you're into it. It's very over the top. <laughs> Lovia, what do you have? I have two books today. The first one is Draft Number 4 by John McPhee. Um, he's actually my professor at Princeton, and so I'm rereading it for nostalgic reasons. And also, it's about it's very writing. much based yeah. on his classes, right? Yeah, he read some of these essays, or parts of these essays, um, as lectures during our 12 weeks together. And so it's sort of nice to go back and see how they've changed in different ways. And also just to revisit, I think, um, a lot of his advice that I appreciated as a sophomore <laughs> in college and uh, appreciate now that I'm actually in a world where writing is part of my very much my everyday, um, and so it's good. Uh, I have a particular favorite, Checkpoints, which is about fact-checkers, um, and so, <laughs> which I am, and I, his appreciation for fact-checkers um, gave me new perspective on my role, so it's good. Um, what was your favorite piece of advice that he gave you as a writing professor? Yeah, it's actually, my favorite piece of advice is not one he gave me while I was in school, but when I emailed him the summer after I graduated in this sort of frenzy of, like, what am I going to do with my life? And he said to me that, your 20s are the times to make a mistake, to make mistakes in writing, um, and that to sort of take this period and to really just, like, write every day because 
if you're going to be a writer, you're going to be a writer. And the self-doubt is like just a part of it. And I think that that was really helpful for me. Yeah. Can I just reassure you that I'm in my 40s and I still make <laughs> mistakes as a writer all the time? <laughs> yeah, I think, I, you know, just coming out of an institution and having perfectionist tendencies, I was just like, oh, my gosh, Professor McPhee, what do I do? And he was just like, nothing, just... Hmm persevere, which is also part of an essay um, in this book. He tells his daughter that to just keep persevering, um, and that's a big part of writing, and that doubt follows you into any decade. So, um, And then the second book I'm reading is a book of two plays by this Ghanaian um, playwright, novelist, and poet, Ama Ata Iadu. The first play is published in 1965. It's called Dilemma of a Ghost, and the second, Anua, was published in 1970. I read the book sort of backwards. So I've only read Anwa, but it's basically about the only child of, of two Ghanaian parents, and they she's meant to be a priestess, and they don't let her, and she's sort of stubborn and has, like, her own mind, and she decides to marry, as sort of like an act of rebellion, decides to marry the man that she loves versus the one that her parents think she should marry. Um, on the roof. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it sort of, like, sort of tracks their three-year marriage, um, and how the tensions between sort of having, like, a westernized sense of, like, what it means to be in love and what it means to be part of a family sort of clash with the very traditional um, Ghanaian idea of, like, of those of those very same themes. And it was really good and felt a little too real at times because <laughs> <laughs> I also am, I feel like, a product of that tension. I was born in Ghana, but, my, but I was raised here, obviously. And so I think I'm reading it as a way to... As a, it was sort of like a, like an antidote to the to the holidays. So, <laughs> yeah. Pamela, what's in front of you? Well, I also had holiday inspired reading, but before I talk about what I read, I just want to pause for a moment and talk for a second about the bestseller list because the book that Greg mentioned earlier, Louise Erdrich's book, debuted on the bestseller list at number thirteen, Future Home of the Living God. And then there was a lot of commercial fiction at the top of the list: new Brendan Sanderson, new Janet Ivanovich, new David Baldacci, semi-new Lee Child, and interestingly, Andy Weir's follow-up to The Martian. Debuted at number five, which is kind of surprising, Artemis. Not hugely surprising because The Martian was such a huge hit. Our reviewer, N.K. Jemison, who does our science fiction column, points out he's maybe better on screen than he is as a book writer, but he's sure got this huge fan base. Right. And then funny thing I noticed on the nonfiction side is how many presidential and presidential adjacent books there are. None of them about the current president, but I have to go down the list because it's really remarkable. Joe Biden's book debuts at number one, Promise Me Dad, followed by Pete Souza's Obama. And there's a children's book version of that that's also on the children's side at number two. At number four, a book on Bobby Kennedy by Chris Matthews. At number six, Ron Chernow's new biography of Grant. At number seven, the Bush daughters, Jenna Bush Hager and Barbara Pierce Bush, writing Sisters First. At eight, Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans by Brian Kilmeade and Don Yeager. At 10, Hillary Clinton's What Happened. And then a little bit further down at number 15, Ta-Nehisi Coates's We Were Eight Years in Power. So I found that interesting. But I did not read anything about any presidents. I also was sort of holiday-driven reading in that I spent part of my holiday weekend, everybody get jealous, at an indoor water park. Um, And so I knew that it was going to be very distracting and noisy and there'd be water on falling on the pages. So I grabbed a book that kind of looked like a thriller called Blackwater by Louise 
Doty um, that was reviewed, I think, earlier this year by Olin Steinhauer in our pages. And it's actually not a thriller, but it has the pacing of a thriller. It's more of a character study, and it's really very good. She follows a character named John Harper, who is a kind of black ops sort of spy who does kind of shady tasks for a large Amsterdam-based corporation um, and works primarily in Indonesia. And the central question, I think, that she's getting at is what would bring someone to do that kind of work that um, is either directly leading to the death of people or indirectly implicated in the deaths of other people. And the portrait that she draws is, is really interesting because the main character, Harper, is a quarter Indonesian and the rest Dutch, who grows up in a concentration camp, um, World War II, in Indonesia. And um, his father is beheaded, executed before he's born. The mother is Dutch and an alcoholic. They end up moving to L.A., during the early civil rights period where she marries an African-American man and Harper, the the protagonist, is left to be raised really by that man's parents. So it, it goes into this very interesting period there. Tragic things ensue and he ends up becoming a black ops specialist in Indonesia during the coup and anti-coup in 1965. And then it, it really goes back and forth in, in time in interesting ways and ends up in the late 90s in Ubud in Bali. And the overall feeling in the book is just one of, of, of impending menace and sort of grappling with the moral ambiguities of this man's um, responsibility for what he does. This character is under the impression that he's going to be killed at any moment, and that pervades the entire novel. And so it moves at this sort of at once slow and yet very tense pace of, you know, he walked into the room, the glass was on the table, half empty. <laughs> so I really liked it. It was very well done. This book, I think in particular, um, has been compared to Le Carre and Graham Greene. To my mind, it was more Graham Greene. You know, it, it's not a spy novel and it doesn't have the complexity of Le Carre, but it has those sort of moral quandaries. So It doesn't scream indoor water park. <laughs> it does not scream indoor water park. It's called Black but, Water. Right. That's <laughs> but the great thing about reading it in an indoor water park is that it completely rivets you so that the right. fact that there's like water everywhere and screaming <laughs> children and, you know, you can kind of block all of that out. So I recommend it. Did it's it. job. Anyway, thanks, guys. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.